0: hello and welcome to the nomcast the netflix original movie podcast i am your host andrew morgan you can follow the show at Nomcast Pod on Twitter and Instagram or you could check us out on the web at nomcastpod.com. All right, thanks for joining us. Always great to have you here listening to me and my exceptional guests talk movies every single week. So thank you for tuning in. Our last few episodes have seen us cover the end of the October horror movie season and the beginning of the Christmas movie season. But Netflix has decided that for the next five or six weeks, we will be covering the Netflix Oscar season as December is chock full of big name talent in front of and behind the camera with the likes of Meryl Streep, Chadwick Boseman, George Clooney, and many others taking center stage all month long. But we will kick off that season officially today with a film that has been long projected to be the biggest Netflix project for 2020, and that movie is Mank, the latest feature film from legendary director David Fincher, and his first since he released Gone Girl back in 2014. The film is based on the screenplay David Fincher's late father Jack Fincher wrote back in the 90s about the scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, a.k.a. Mank. The film stars Oscar winner Gary Oldman as the immensely talented, often cynical, and deeply flawed Bank, who patterns his storied screenplay for Orson Welles's masterpiece after the publishing tycoon William Randolph Hearst, played by Tywin Lannister himself, Charles Dance. The film is supported by a deep ensemble cast, led by Amanda Seyfried, who portrays actress Marion Davies a woman who has to contend with the delicate balance of being a friend to Mank while also being the love of William Randolph Hearst's life. Other notable actors in the film include Lily Collins as Rita Alexander, Arliss Howard as MGM studio head Louis B. Mayer, Tom Pelfrey as Mank's brother and famous screenwriter Joseph Mankiewicz, and The Souvenir's Tom Burke as the incomparable boy genius Orson Welles. Now, What better way to break down what might be Netflix's biggest film of the year than to do one of our beloved crossover episodes with the boys at Mike, Mike and Oscar. These gentlemen are absolute pros and their award season centric podcast is first rate. So I'm super excited that we were able to do this episode with them. And just as we have in the past, we will give you the Mike, Mike and Oscar format, a non-spoiler section up top filled with our expectations and general thoughts on the film, followed by a spoiler section where we dissect the film more in detail. We will then wrap up the pod with our grades on the film and what chances we think Mank will have come nomination time for the 2021 Oscars. We will give you all that in just a moment, But first, a word from our friends at Forgotten Entertainment. Another season of Forgotten Horror has
1: come to an end, but as Field paraphrases Al Pacino from *Send of a Woman, We're just getting warmed up! spend the next few months with Forgotten Cinema as Season 7 kicks off with movies from all across the
2: decades. We jump to the 70s to talk about The
0: Front Page starring Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau.
2: We dive into the 80s with Michael Mann's Thief and the Dennis Quaid Meg Ryan thriller DOA and then slice into Butler's childhood years the 90s with The Last Samurai and The Negotiator. That's
0: right, Field. You're old. So very, very old. Shut up, Butler.
2: Forgotten Cinema, part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Have those Marvel blues while Black Widow's theatrical release date is consistently delayed? Well, turn that frown upside down because yet another MCU podcast is here to guide
0: you through the MCU one movie at a time. That's right, Mike. Each episode, we break down one movie from the MCU and talk about its connections with the source material, comic books. Which means I get to learn so many fascinating things like about Alpha Flight. The Canadian Avengers.
2: Who knew? And Moon Knight.
0: A multiple personality superhero. Seriously?
2: And then there's Man-Thing.
0: Yeah, not really sure how to explain that one.
2: Pretty sure no one can. Yet another MCU podcast, part of the Forgotten Entertainment family.
0: Alright, welcome back. Can't wait for you all to hear our review of Mank with the mics from Mike, Mike, and Oscar, but I wanted to urge anyone listening to check out their amazing podcast. They do an amazing job of keeping Oscar season going all year long with all the news and reviews you could want while filtering it through the Oscar lens. So be sure to subscribe to their podcast, Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and follow them on Twitter at m and oscar And of course, if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the Nomcast, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us right now. All right, let's get to it. Here it is, another excellent crossover with Mike, Mike, and Oscar for David Fincher's Mank. Give a listen.
2: All right, a crossover episode here from Mank, Mike, Mike, and Oscar with Nomcast Andrew. As always, we can dive right in here and talk about setting the table. And as we all saw in Mank, it's a long table to set, so we have a lot to do here. Let's talk about our expectations. We could have a bit of a teaser review and talk about our watching experience. So the three of us have chatted about our expectations a bit over the year in preparation for this movie. I'll say I really tried to go into this one with those feelings set aside did either of you come in attempting to do the same, or did you let the anticipation of the words Fincher and old man and Citizen Kane get the better of you? We'll start, Andrew. What were your expectations going in here?
0: Uh, I well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, the The expectations are so high <laughs> because I am <laughs> I am an incredibly uh, big Fincher fan and it's hard to separate those feelings when you're watching something especially you know he's not done anything that you know when i saw the trailer there's nothing that looks and feels fincherish about right. anything if i can use that as a as a term <laughs> um because he's known for certain things like you know setting mood and you know thrillers with this like stark lighting and you know the certain uh especially now that he's teamed up with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I mean, he's definitely got even a sound that kind of incorporates the feeling of a Fincher project. And, and this is so very different that while I wanted to go in going, this is going to be very different. I also know that the blueprint is still inherently Fincher. So you kind of have a certain expectation in terms of mood and some other elements that he's known for. Mm. Um, So it's hard to separate those things. So immediately when I put it on, I was like, this is going to be different.
1: (laughs) And I kind of, I'm the insufferable film critic who's very measured. And I know this drives you absolutely crazy, Mike, because (laughs) somehow I like, internalize my high expectations and all my, you know, if it's, if it's from a director I've loved, just like you, Andrew, if I've loved my whole life and I watch his, most of his filmography every year, I, I really suppress all the, and oppress those emotions. So my experience with this movie is much different than you guys. I think, because I'm not necessarily looking to fall in love with the movie mm. because I'm a little bit cynical in that regard. And especially with 2020, it just, it hasn't happened to me yet with a a movie, even though I've kind of fallen in like with this one,
2: (laughs) you know, I'm really head over heels. You're in the dating stage right now.
1: I'm head over heels, passionately and hopelessly in like with Mank.
2: You're walking through the mall and you're seeing, oh, I think Mank would like that. Yeah, I get where you're at. It's adorable. I I, I will say, Mike, like you kind of threw a little... Uh, water on my expectations. I was. I tried. tried. Yeah, and I think it was for the better because if I went in, I like because of what you were saying. I purposely tried to keep my expectations out of it. But if I went in like a you know runaway freight train, I think I would have been. Uh, very let down from the first watch But this is all kind of intricacies We'll get into and explain more We know each other that. well at this point we know each other. I know you well enough to where I gotta Hold you back a little bit right. sometimes Right, it's for the better uh, Andrew, did you have a chance to catch this one in theaters Or did you watch it only in your
0: home? i did not i uh i have turned into uh, a version of a bubble boy again uh, i think i we're hunkered down you know it, it's it's a very different feeling it's it's harkening back to the spring in terms of uh, quarantine and all that so it's one of those um yeah i i didn't i couldn't i couldn't bring myself to do it i was so tempted but uh especially you know considering you know even of our fallen comrade here uh also mike you know <laughs> it kind of speaks to you know it, the walls seem to be closing in so i'm trying to to keep it you know as uh, clean as i could but uh yeah i had to wait until netflix unfortunately
2: so let's talk about, let's compare, because I know, Mike, you did see it in theaters. Andrew, did you feel like you were missing anything not seeing this on the big screen? Because oh, I'm like you, I only saw it in my home because I'm never leaving these walls again with COVID being what it is. <laughs> so uh, did you feel like you were missing out at all? And then, Mike, you jump in and talk about what you gained from the theatrical experience or at least how it was different. Uh, the answer is
0: yes. Like, you, yeah. you, you don't want to watch a Fincher movie this way, and I mean that with all due respect, especially as a person who does a Netflix podcast. Right. Um, <laughs> that, you know, for something that is so unique and especially for someone who tried to make this a painstaking experience in terms of, you know, the trying to hark back to an older time and, and an older, you know, style and really went through the efforts of putting, you know, the, the cigarette burns and, mm-hmm. and everything else and, and the way they tried to create the audio design as if they literally I think he described as uh, pulled from a UCLA basement where they found the footage somewhere <laughs> like he, he, I think he even said like that it was <laughs> I think he said that or Martin Scorsese's basement and I was like yeah I, I get that um, but yeah that was it, it was a beautiful sentiment and and something that I want to experience in full and my my home experience can only do so much not that it didn't translate or that you couldn't appreciate on some level through here. But, you know, there is, you know, that different level of of influence that you can have. And and I really wanted to see how the digital really wanted to blow up on screen as well, Mm. considering the change into the black and white. I mean, he shot it in 8K on a monochromatic red camera, which, you know, I really wanted to kind of see how that blows up nicely. Hopefully it shouldn't be any different than, you know, I would assume... Outside of the the black and white of it all that you know something you know like past experiences of Netflix films on screen like the Irishman or something else will also kind of hark to a similar outcome but I really wanted to see this version on screen.
1: Well, I'll start off insufferably once again <laughs> and uh, say that it was everything I've hoped for, you've hoped for, and more. Uh, really? It's that immersive on the big screen. And we were talking about our ideal movie watching experiences, especially with something that's a bit of a, you know, like a Fincher movie. It's a bit of a, an obsession piece for us as film critics. Critics for us as you know pseudo academics. I watch this an embarrassing amount of times. Like I humble brag to you guys before the show about how many times I've watched this now because I played it on loop over the last two days. But I, I like I don't even want to tell people because it just shows and cements the fact that I have no other life but this. <laughs> and but look, I mean it, it was a, a case where like The Irishman last year. I was able to just kind of really get comfortable with the story, get immersed into the story, love all the production values, love all the sound design and all those tidbits that you mentioned, Andrew, that you kind of have to, you know, shut the laptop off to really just be mesmerized with at home. And and it is harder to, I mean, you really got to up the volume and you got to have the home theater set up to enjoy all that. When you're in the movies, you're fixated, of course. So I've been very happy to do the film study on Netflix at home. And I feel very lucky to have gotten into the theater because you guys will never feel the same way I did because you will never go to a theater again because theaters are dead and we're we'll all we all established <laughs> this. I mean so kiss your chances goodbye, Andrew. I mean at best. Amazon buys I mean Netflix that we've established this. Netflix doesn't want to buy all the movie theaters. No. Amazon might and yes. Amazon's not showing a Netflix film, so you're screwed. Mm. That's a whole other level of uh, of, <laughs>
2: of
0: intricacy going into that story. I hope I'm but...
1: wrong about every single point of that, but I, that's my cynical brain.
0: Also, be... Mike is just basically the cooler for everybody. Like, he cooled <laughs> your expectations. He's cooling my experiences as a human being and a filmophile, you know, a cinephile. Yeah. No, thanks, Mike. Wasn't that a, a mediocre
2: job. movie starring Vin Diesel? The cooler or is that just somewhere rattling around? We knew when we talked about Citizen Kane and Gary Oldman and the best of cinema. Eventually, we hit on Vin Diesel. How of course. How
1: did you just confuse <laughs> Vin Diesel and with William H, H. Macy?
2: <laughs> oh, what am That's I? What no, you know what I'm confused. thinking of? What's that? What's that fucking uh, that that um, stock market movie that he, Vin Diesel was the, in? Oh, a a Boiler young Vin- Room. Spoiler room. Thank yes. you. Nothing. Thank you. To do. You.
1: With the cooler. Nothing. Nowhere near it. Did I just rattle your hosting abilities completely? That's. that's I again, told you again. I'm in, I'm. I'm on a rampage in this episode. Listen, it's pulling
2: back start. the curtain. <laughs> pulling back the curtain. I wanted to host today because I've told both these guys I have no idea how I feel about this movie right now. That's not and, your
1: fault though. I mean, like, well, again, to go- you couldn't embrace the same kind of watching experience that we did because you were editing Social Network to midday yesterday and you just
2: kind of well, and the this script. I mean. We could talk about script thoughts, but like, so the first thing I noticed, and we, we this is something we mentioned all along the Mank mini series thus far is that, you know, we have these films that are kind of ahead of the times and they both play with the plot. Neither the social network nor Citizen Kane jumped around, I felt, as much as this one. Was it a tough follow for either of you guys on your first watch through? Or what are your thoughts about just the overall framing of this story, or I guess stories that Mank shows?
0: I don't know if you want me to jump in first, Mike, but like basically uh, you know, it's interesting how they bring up the uh, the cinnamon roll version mm-hmm. of talking about Citizen Kane and then kind of looping it into kind of looking at itself being kind of self-referential. Um, I would say that it, we kind of talked a little bit off air about the the, the huge amount of, like the the sheer volume of themes that right. come through his movie and kind of the left turns that it makes yeah. kind of midway through. I, I went through and kind of wrote down a lot of like what I think This movie is trying to say, uh, (laughs) and and it was like a full paragraph. It was (laughs) you know, you know, Mag's personal downfalls and not seeing his own profession as something to be celebrated or taken seriously, the power of the studios and over their employees in the pre union and early union years, you have Mm -hmm. the power of Hearst money and influence over everything uh, and how he chooses to wield it through messaging uh, during a time of the rise of Hitler. I mean, you have Upton (laughs) Sinclair in here, you have the, you know, that's kind of a mirror to a little bit of like a Bernie Sanders or modern GOP versus Democrat, thinking and then you got you know Manx final act as a means of respect, defiance and clarity in his own life kind of wrapping up that storyline. You have so many things. And I didn't even mention one organ grinder's monkey. So like (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot to take in
1: so we have a cinnamon roll structure for the social network and a full cinnamon roll for the citizen kane and mank talks about that being just you know one circular narrative here we have a a miniature cinnamon roll i don't know what they call this at cinnabon (laughs) getting so hungry yeah it sounds
0: delicious though (laughs) they have
1: a miniature cinnamon roll in act one because the 1940 plot line brings him to you know writing Citizen Kane, but then shows him what happened before he wrote Citizen Kane, so that one does a little pirouette and, and makes that little circle in act one and then in Act two, the flashback uh, storyline does another pirouette because we got to meet mang we got to meet Hearst and Davies with a uh, letterer Charlie Letterer, the other screenwriter of mm-hmm. eventually his girl Friday that Mank uses as his connection to the William Randolph Hearst, Marion Davies, San Simeon plotline that happens but we also jump back and forth to show like him at paramount and then show him meeting mayor and thalberg and getting to mgm so there's a pirouette in act two but guys none of this really matters because the whole movie is centered on a 1934 californian gubernatorial race which is not right. what anybody thought talking about this movie hiding was gonna the be ball
2: in the marketing and all that like we talk, <laughs> I mean, oh Jesus. god yeah uh, it, well, see it was it's a it's a cool storytelling device, and mm-hmm. I we've seen Fincher use it more successfully. I will say I felt like, and Mike, you dropped this term in the pre-show. Self-indulgent is the way I would describe some of it because I just felt like it, it, it got a little too crazy back and forth. And you're set up early on with these... The The framing is as if you're actually writing a screenplay. It'll be like Interior, California, Daytime, 1934. And then he just stops doing that about halfway through the movie and just expects you to keep up. That was a... Because we were jumping around so much, I, I felt like that was a little much to take for me. Did you guys... Either one of you, I, I don't know who wants to pick up here, but did well, you have problems following the story just the first time through? Yes, but it's
1: also... Something that goes linear, like the 1940 plot line goes linear by mid movie, and then, then the 1934 plot line goes linear and really linear, skips it far. Not,
2: it's not yeah. all the most necessary stuff either. It's a bit, it, it goes, it takes itself in directions I don't think it needs to at times, no?
0: Yeah, I think it's not thematically linear, is what I would say.
1: What's confusing about Act two late act two and then act three is that again, you know, the the modern plot line is in 1940. And then we have the central plot line in 1934. And we got to jump far ahead to 3637 for a couple of scenes in that transition from act two until act three. So that that was a bit confusing, and like you said earlier, Andrew, we're talking about World War II and foreshadowing the Nazis of the 1940s. We're talking about the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl and F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is the 1910s and 20s, and of course, bookending it all is this Mank, you know, last stand as a writer and a script doctor for 1939's *The Wizard of Oz*. So it's really confusing because you you know, especially when he takes the uh, the the scene headings off, like. Mike, you're saying... It's confusing. On what, are, are we jumping around again? And it, I, I agree with you there. But I, it does make sense at the end of it if you watch it enough times like an insane maniac like me. <laughs> so don't worry. This The plot and the story makes sense. I don't think this movie has plot and story issues. I think, it, like you're saying, it may have economy issues and we could question... I agree with that. Like you were saying to me yesterday, Mike, Like this probably works better as a miniseries where you can Absolutely. have you know, a, a, an episode devoted to each one of these conflicts that all tie together. I would probably agree with that.
0: I agree with that.
2: What about the dialogue in within the scenes themselves? I felt like again, this is just you know my own ridiculousness, and we know I never speak in hyperbolic tones, but <laughs> uh, like this has to be one of the most packed dialogues per scenes uh, scripts I've ever seen. I felt like he was uh, Fincher was trying to out Sorkin Sorkin at some points.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, there are certain things that are classic Fincher moves in here, like the the parable of the organ grinder's monkey is a clear Fincher mm-hmm. power play recall thing that he would do 100%. Um, I mean, Fincher himself doesn't get enough credit for, for his writing prowess, but obviously even in his last few films, he's kind of taken a little bit of a different stance, obviously with Sorkin and, and Social Network as being a prime example, but... Here, you know, he's relying on the narrative that his father set forth, which has to be hard to kind of, you know, take apart, right. even in how, for how old this script is. We, You know, it's notoriously from the 90s, so mm-hmm. for, for it to update, I know that they had uh, Roth from the production staff kind of looking into it and trying to update the script for what it was, but also knowing that. Uh, jack fincher you know was trying to go from the kale perspective from the p- raising cane perspective it's it's going to be very different i mean the only thing that they have kind of in common is that uh fincher is notoriously um he's not anti wells but he definitely thinks of wells as a lesser being and it kind of influences this script and, and this film mm. you can kind of see because i think he doesn't Harold like he doesn't think of him as a, a genius right as much as the rest of kind of the film community it kind of shows in here but I mean I, I definitely agree uh, not only with your your mini series talk but I mean definitely there's so much here and even in the dialogue you have. A lot of you know references that I know. <laughs> also, Mike was filling up the the Google Doc with like, "Hey, I don't know how good your Latin is, but here, take this." And, uh, and- French, Latin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's your French. Here's your Latin. Here's your uh, reference to you know. I don't know if you read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. I don't know if you read <laughs> uh, you know uh, Don Quixote recently or you know any of these things, but. So it is kind of a brain twister, you know, if, if you aren't a on the nose scholar in the sense of Magowitz and 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 a lot of the people he's surrounded himself with. You know, he's a former newspaper guy. He was a critic. Um, you know, he, he definitely knows how to talk the talk and, mm-hmm. and is well uh, versed in many different things. Uh, a man about the world. But I mean, my goodness, uh, it kind of shows in the Kane script. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, kind of that influence of how he is in real life, which is kind of fun to see. But yeah, it'll hurt your brain. Well, I agree with both you guys.
1: And, you know, the most overused word in film Twitter right now about Mank is density. and this. But but they're right, and you're right, and and, and Mike, you're right about comparing this to, like, a Sorkin wannabe script in many Mm. ways to try. And it doesn't reach that level, unfortunately. But I do think that Fincher is... Being very self-critical. And he's making Orson Welles this amalgamation of himself as a director and how he works with screenwriters of his past. And maybe that's a tip of the cap to the Aaron Sorkins. And certainly a tip of the cap to his father's screenplay here, even though, you know, he, and ironically, he lays back and does not take the credit at all, does not share a screen credit and gives his father full screen credit, <laughs> despite uh-huh. the fact that Eric Roth, the writer of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Forrest Gump and go back writer producer or whatever he's an expert on old-time Hollywood he and David Fincher essentially rewrote the father's script to modernize it here but they don't take credit and that you know ultimate dramatic irony I do think I do think this is you know David Fincher getting a little too too cute early but I think my biggest discovery upon watching this is that it is almost in and th- feel and tone and mood it is almost something that mirrors a state of drunkenness and-, and mirrors like the cycle of addiction and david fincher's mom guys we talked about this in the last episode david fincher's mom worked her entire life her pro- entire professional life she worked at drug addiction clinics and mm. david fincher's dad his entire post career was studying guys like howard hughes and and herman which studying addiction studying what his wife devoted her entire career to and this movie like goes from this cute and funny and buzzed act one this up Upbeat act one, and it turns drunker and drunker until you, you know, you have a Mankiewicz who can like feel no pain to the point where in the middle of the movie he makes his gravest mistakes before things get sloppier and sloppier and he can't repair them until the hangover of the next day. But guess what? He's an addict and. (laughs) he has to go back to the drink. So Act 3, he's still making more mistakes that are going to reverberate throughout Hollywood history and are going to attack the people that he's loved and had relationships with. And alcoholism will get the better of him, not only in Act 3, but in the epilogue. So this is like one of the most fascinating portrayals of alcoholism, and portraits of addiction that I have ever seen. And
2: End of rant. Well, it's addiction on several levels too, I would say. I mean, it's not it's addiction to fame, it's addiction to political power, and then there's also the the nail on the head addiction that it's dealing with throughout the main character in alcoholism uh, as well. But I, I Okay, Mike. <laughs> and Andrew, Andrew, maybe you could play the kind of decider here because Mike <laughs> is insisting that a lot of these things are factual based, that the script is on. To me, it seemed a bit contrived that the po- that the p- political speaking both literally and metaphorically the politics of the time going on within the studio and within the gubernatorial race depicted in Mank yeah. mirror so exactly what's going on in 2020 in terms right. of unionization in terms of socialism things that haven't hadn't reared their head as talking everyday talking points in America until Donald Trump took office, the last four years for the most part. Uh, do you buy the fact that this was all just happenstance, or do you feel that there's any kind of contrivance to work that in?
0: Because it is a huge part of this plot, obviously. Well, interesting that we're talking about a movie that talks about messaging in cinema, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and then we're going to talk about this. So there are a few things at play. I mean, any person who's studied history knows that history ends up being very cyclical. Like, especially if you talk usually in kind of like 30 year bursts, you go back and you Mm -hmm. see how Mm -hmm. we just didn't learn our mistakes and things start over, just reinvented through whatever technology we have at the time. And this is kind of a version of that. But at the same time, you know, a lot of these things get filtered um, and, and a lot of people in the modern day venture is not incredibly venture um, hmm. does his own thing. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, so for him to kind of look like he's jumping in on what everybody else is doing would be a false start for me. But the, uh, the 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 filter of what's going on probably has some influence, you know, in terms of that and the way to shift um, how we can make this a modern take. Or at least mm. make this seem more grounded. That's the one thing you guys are talking about uh, Sorkin maybe versus you know something like this script is Sorkin, even though he is extremely educated, he doesn't talk over people's heads a ton. Like maybe in the West Wing he did more, but the more he kind of goes on, he tries to put things at ground level to make things more tangible for people, the average Good person point. to kind of get the message. This I don't think served to that purpose, and that's why I think it's one of those movies that I think you have to watch multiple times to truly enjoy and to garner everything that's supposed to go. I don't think it lowers. It's it's again interesting because we're I can harken back to a moment in this movie where it literally talks <laughs> about that when he's talking about how he wrote Sis and Kane. So you know, but I think for all it's worth, I mean, Kane is pretty direct. Um, You know, in terms of its messaging, I don't think it lowered itself, but I think that it's one of those movies that is tangible to the average person. Um, But, you know, at the same time, I think you can get what you can get from this movie without trying to think that it's talking over you, but it is kind of talking over you. Well, to your point,
1: in the central exposition dump scene that is a gorgeous exposition dump, if there ever was one, there is French, Latin... Uh, Yiddish and <laughs> yes. multiple references, multiple references to a Spanish novel, Don Quixote. So, yeah, absolutely. It is dense, especially the Marion Davies, Herman Mankiewicz scenes. Uh, I do think in terms of the critique of old old Hollywood, in terms of the pro- political critique, that David Fincher was a bit empowered by, I think, this last election cycle by the last 20 years, of course. And I wonder if he indulged In that prioritization, because I do feel like, again, he could have devoted an episode to the boys club, right? And the problems of the boys club. And a lot of those critiques are fleeting and oblique and all the xenophobia and all of the diminished uh, importance of the racist uh, threads in this movie. And the uh, the, obviously the elitism involved. Uh, I mean, the chauvinism. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm getting uh, tripped up here because there's so much that he just gives a glance to here or there, and it, it's pointed and it, and it has right. teeth, right? I mean, there. I mean, there's a character in the story that's just ornamental, where you say, "Oh my God, look at what disgusting chauvinist pigs this boys' uh, club writers' room must have been!" If she is ornamental in this scene, and it's just terrifying how how that is. You know something that would have a ripple effect throughout the industry but of course we end up focusing on the politics the we, the we end up focusing on the white guy problems of the aristocracy controlling everything from behind the scenes and the fake news that ultimately becomes the a plot line and you have bechdel tests being failed and you have underrepresented mm. groups being only you know you know, have their, you know, have the hat tipped to them, but not. It's not enough. And I almost wish Fincher had had a whole mini series to deal with each uh, on Same. their own accord.
2: Yeah, I, I walked away from my first viewing, uh, saying, you know, I wish this was Mine Hunter, and the Mine Hunter manson story was Fincher's movie. I feel like they should have, because yeah. I just feel like there's so much to explore uh, within this movie itself, but all right, I wanted to kind of blow out our thoughts on the script, because this script, like Mike said, I mean, it's just, there's so much, so dense, like Andrew said, there's so many themes going on, so I wanted to make sure we had time to investigate that. Let's go on and talk about our production values now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a little comical that Film has become so self-referential and you can wax poetic about film so much that now doing stuff that we would have killed films for doing back in the day without checking themselves, without editing. Like if we see a cigarette burn on an old film, we would have killed it. If we had somebody talking too close to the mic like this, like is done in this movie, we, we would have killed it for it. And now we're kind of that? giving props to all of that. So I, I, I think there's there's cute little things that Fincher does. What stood out most to you, Andrew, in terms of the production values here?
0: you know i read a lot about how he tried to you know compress and degrade the film to try to get the the look that he was accomplishing so i was very interested in that though i will say and again i don't know if it's the the netflix viewing of it all but most people are watching it this way so i might as well comment from that perspective is it looks very digital still in a lot of ways and and a lot of it you know especially with some of the uh the focusing and mm-hmm. like there's one scene in particular and I won't get into the details of course, but like the, there's a scene with, uh, towards the end with Davies, uh, talking to Mank having a picnic. And I just noticed in that, like just the separation or lack, like this rack focusing that they do where it's kind of, you know, trying to blur out the back and everything looks so digital. And like there, and and Mm. that's just one of many instances where I was just like, God, this looks so digital. Um, that I think some of what he was trying to go for mm-hmm. does suffer in areas. But overall, I think it is an accomplishment in terms of the look. Um, but, you know, if I know I'm on a dealing with the Oscar friends here. So, I mean, <laughs> if, if I was to to try to see what the strengths are, I don't know. It, here's my guess. It'll probably be up for cinematography, and in the same way, like you gentlemen ripped apart some of the Irishman stuff last year to then uh, see like why is this in special effects or or why is it kind of in the cinematography conversation? I feel like we're going to have that same conversation a little bit about this movie. All right, Mike. So you heard it, Andrew hates David Fincher. What are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> To me, the
1: star or the runaway pick in terms of Oscar lensing here is production design. Like, to me, there's no sure. other production design uh, with the, the amount of quantity of quality that Mank has. Now, does the black and white diminish? It's showcase a little bit, perhaps I would I would agree with that. but I mean, you get to walk through all of the old Hollywood lots. You walk through San Simeon. everybody just has, I mean the old cars and, and everybody has the, uh, the the rooms that are just completely built out, uh, and even the writer's nook. That Mank winds up being at is is really uh, you know lusciously decored. I'm I'm almost I can't believe I used that phrase lusciously decored. What the <laughs> hell is going on with me? I wrote down so much stuff, but then I ad lib lusciously decored. anyway. What you
2: what you don't see is Mike's doing this whole thing with a monocle and a corn cob pipe in his mouth.
1: <laughs> That's the most pretentious thing I've ever said on this podcast, and I have to I have to self reflexively go back and just completely lampoon what I just said because I'm just so embarrassed of it. Anyway, look. I I think it's trying to be a mix of modern and old timey I think the sound design's a great example of that, like you were saying with the cinematography, Andrew I think there it goes in and out of digital, and I think it goes in and out of modern sound design, because we have the homogenous uh, 1930s, 1940s voice quality in certain moments, but yeah. then in others, he has to get crystal clear sound design, because they're walking and talking, and we need to hear everything they're saying, and we want to hear the inflections of Mank's drunken voice and its great drunken acting to have a drunken voice for, and we want to hear Orson Wells and, the, and, and the, the the depth of that Tom Burke impersonation which really works and and we want to hear Marion Davies and Amanda seedfried's voice shine through so I really love the sound design as being a mixture of both of those things I love the editing because you get a lot of you know 1940s edits and transitions from one scene to mm. the next which I love but there's also There's also some fast-moving, modern, you know, it's it's beyond 12 Angry Men, Sorkin-type stuff in some Mm. of these dialogue scenes like we just reviewed in the social network where it's cut pretty fast by the same guy. And you get that modern feel to it. So I do think they're trying to find a synthesis. I think all of these production values are going to be high in people's top five lists right now. And we're going to get into Oscar lens in a few minutes. But I think uh, production design is the runaway for me at the moment. And Mike, Uh, uh, sorry, just real quick, because I wanted
0: to clarify something on the cinematography. There are certain things that I thought were truly awesome nods to kind of – Harkening back to the Kane script. Like yeah. uh, one of the big things that Kane is notorious for is obviously going through the floorboards to get these power shots and everything else. I thought they did an <laughs> excellent job with trying to mimic some of the angles and some of the the themes of that prior IP to mm, kind of push totally. into here. So I, I do enjoy a lot of those things. And you're absolutely right on the editing. A lot of the, the fade to blacks in between scenes as transitions were fully like an old older style thing I, right I, I mean between the rebecca remake going back and watching old hitchcock and going back and watching <laughs> citizen kane and everything else uh you know we're all kind of doing these uh time jumps as as <laughs> you know film critics if we haven't refreshed in a while uh but so a lot of those things definitely hark back to those you know 30s and 40s style things one thing i i do want to note from the both of you and sorry to kind of sound hosty there is the the cinematography is notably do you find it to be noticeably different like does fincher's style still come through because to me he 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 brings in eric messerschmidt which he worked with with mind hunter which mind hunter had a very fincher look Mm -hmm. i mean when he's directing let's put it that way Uh, when he's directing the episodes he didn't direct all the episodes but the ones that he had you're like clearly this is a fincher film and you know but he hasn't worked with him prior all those other movies were done by, you know, a different cinematographer. So, like, when you're talking about, I mean, he was the gaffer on Gone Girl. We're not going to be like, <laughs> oh, they have such a shorthand. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it, not to, I don't want to dismiss gaffers. I was that's... just going to check you on that. I'm not <laughs> no. lying. I was going to check you on that. I,
1: I, I had him like, wait, wait, he was involved in
0: Gone Girl. <laughs> it's just not the same conversation in tone. But, but at the same time, gaffers do have a loom large in a in a film like a fincher film so i don't want to dismiss that especially but i don't know how you know if that influences some of the the difference here that we're seeing not just the difference in camera not just the difference in time period and what he's trying to display so i don't know if you guys had an opinion on that
1: I think he's worked with different cinematographers, though, like like Christopher Nolan. Even though Christopher Nolan's kind of gone more for uh, Hoytema lately with his, his blockbusters, but I do think he's bounced around for a few cinematographers, and and he does like to stay with them for like a couple projects in a row. So that makes sense to me that he would stick with Messer Schmidt, who, like he, you know, came up doing Fincher himself. Fincher went from lighting to camera operating and Messer Schmidt went from lighting and, and gaffing to to camera operating obviously you know breaking out as a cinematographer of the in the last decade or so so i think i think that makes some sense i think fincher wanted to do something entirely new with this story and uh, you know obviously the black and white angle is something totally different for him so it made makes sense to me that he would go with a fresh Gaze and, there, and there are a lot of homages to, to Orson Welles uh, that I get. Uh, I'm just shocked, you know, kind of to do an awkward transition. I'm just shocked they went with the original score guys from the social network. And I think the best uh, example of versatility is that Atticus Ross... And Trent yeah. Reznor, Atticus Ross is not from Radiohead, by the way. I don't know why I said that. I oh, got that addiction. Wrong. Oh, Jane's addiction to, yeah, I said he was the Radiohead guy, but that's that there will be blood guys. Oh, my
2: Vin it. Diesel comparison ain't looking so bad now, is it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Egg on this face. And, I uh, yeah, I feel very embarrassed by that. I said that in the Social Network episode. Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, they make that crazy synth pop cool-ass movie score in the social network and then this score sounds like a hitchcock film i mean it sounds like that ominous foreboding my goodness i love this score and uh, and much like the cinematography is trying to be that mixture this felt like a mixture where i I feel i feel there's notes of an old-timey score but there's also something that feels quite like a uh like a modern pta movie in a way
2: Trent Reznor famously of Green Day, of course. I, uh, <laughs> I, I I almost wonder if Jack Fincher wasn't involved and if this was totally left up to Netflix's discretion, if they would have been like, okay, Sorkin, you're going to take the Mank movie <laughs> and Fincher, you're going to take the Trial of the Chicago 7 movie because there's, I feel like there's so much Sorkin influence. Like, the walk and talking shots for cinematography, I think are, are really well shot and well done. There's a couple camera shots in this that are very reminiscent. Never mind to say, like we've been talking about all throughout so far, about the dialogue and how it's trying to be so quick witted and so uh, melodic, like Sorkin does. It, it's just funny to me that these two guys ended up doing the other movies, uh, and, and that I think each other would have done just as good, if not a better job of, had they had the content <laughs> at their own disposal. But I guess to to kind of leave the script there and leave all the production values there, uh, Mike, you already made mention about how Oldman did some, uh, at least physically, well acting when he looked like he had that the drunken slur going on there. Let's talk about the performances now. Oldman's obviously the lead, playing the titular character. Uh, Mike, what were your thoughts overall about what Gary Oldman put forth here? Is it Oscar-level or no?
1: Yes, it's definitely Oscar-level, and I'm really excited for him on that. I wonder if he'll get overlooked because it is the strangest narrative where he's coming off you know, uh, an Oscar-winning performance three years ago. Mm. I I had a a couple questions that I was going to ask you guys, and I I think I'm just going to go with it now because I wonder if, number one, this is Oldman's best of his career. I'm not the Mm. huge fan of the Darkest Hour performance that some people are. And number two, like, if you put... This performance up against the last three winners, which was Oldman for Darkest Hour, which was Rami Malik for, for Bo, Bo Rap, and which was Joker, uh, you know, Joaquin Phoenix for Joker there, and now we have Mank. I mean, of those four undeniably historically accurate, built on reality performances, which is the best? Hmm. Jesus. Because uh, like oh, it's a, it's one of those situations again, like those Leo situations. Like I feel like this is Oldman's best performance. I guess it's a leading question. I should just answer my own long-winded Francis question.
2: So you're saying this is the best of his career?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I mean again, I'm mesmerized by it. I'm 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 in the thick of it right now. Best drunken af- acting ever. But he's also doing next level stuff. I almost feel like. Like this Oldman performance, similarly that I, the way I felt with uh, D- Daniel Day Lewis's Phantom Thread performance, and Daniel mm. Day Lewis was never going to win for Phantom Thread. We all know that. I mm. mean, he was he was just going to be nominated in, like Meryl Streep a thousand times. But I mean, you know, man, I mean, this man character is just going off the wall. He's bouncing off the wall. I mean, everything he does is treacherous and uh, treacherous. And he's playing the court jester, and he's also playing like this confident reformer, the social political reformer throughout this movie. I'm so impressed with Gary Oldman.
2: I like that your natural inclination was to compare this performance to someone like the Joker, as <laughs> if uh you know, talk about two wildly different takes on uh on subject matter there.
1: If this performance was in twenty seventeen going up against Phantom Thread, I'm guessing that Gary Oldman wins for this performance. I almost think like this has become so narrative driven nowadays and even though I love Chadwick and Maray and, I, and I, I'm really excited for uh, Anthony Hopkins, maybe as a as his second, you know, his second time. I wonder if Chadwick wins in supporting because supporting so wide open, if that reopens the door for Oldman second or Hopkins second, uh, if not Lindo here. So I just I, I I think he's being underrated in this category right now, but I I don't expect him to really you know gain any momentum because he won three years ago.
0: Were you blown away, Andrew? I think it's strongest. Uh, if if you think about it, just because there's so many themes and so many masters he has to serve here, especially as a drunk, <laughs> most of the time <laughs> is, is if, to do it almost seamlessly. But like you said, uh, Mike, earlier about how kind of the script seems almost drunken at times in terms of its you know style and and the way it's trying to throw some of those messages across. I mean the the fact that he can stay within that all the way through is not only i mean because i'm sure you guys have already heard the stories about fincher making him do something 100 or 200 <laughs> times. like right. he, he was classic fincher stories abound on this one between him and amanda seyfried i mean they both have stories where they had to do so many takes to try to get it across so it's not only a credit to fincher to try to get that out of oldman but it is a credit to oldman that he was able to accomplish it whether (laughs) in a haze of how he has to feel from from that many takes or not um but i would say i don't know i've always liked oldman's 90s performances better i know that might be (laughs) you know uh, something that's harking back to you know when i i was you know so focused and really getting into movies for the for the first time in earnest but i mean I like him when he could turn it on and be more aggressive. These are definitely more subdued roles and something more subtle. Um, but this one kind of rides the line between that subtlety and when he can turn it on. Um, there are moments where I thought his kind of accent or tone wasn't consistent. And, and hmm. for that is why I winced slightly when you hmm. said that um, I'm also not a huge fan of darkest hour, so I won't, sit here and champion that one over this but i i think if if anything is true about this one is that it's it's amazing how consistent he could be in the performance
1: so i agree with you for a lot, a lot of my issues with this movie are on composition at the end of the day and it's probably on fincher as a director even though i think his high moments will get him nominated his high moments well, and, and for oldman too we'll get him nominated but i do have an issue that's why I, I likened it to almost that drunken arc in terms of the screenwriting and how he wants you to make you feel mood wise tone wise because at the end of the day that's the through line i found with it uh with the with the script with the way this story moves with the way the performance moves i mean you get his sloppiest scenes later in the film and then you get like his hangover in with the uh with the 1940s plot line so this is This is Gary Oldman, like you said, understanding where they are in the script and really working well with Fincher. He's also sixty-two playing (laughs) forty-three. It's ridiculous, (laughs) which is absurd. Which they almost make this like meta joke about later in the film. Because Tuppence Middleton is in, her, you know, mid to early or early thirties, and uh, you know his brother Joe Mankiewicz is in his late thirties, and how could he be twenty-two year older years older than his younger brother and that much right. older than his wife unless this is scuzzy, awful old Hollywood stuff? It makes no sense. It makes no sense uh, realistically. So. He's pulling that off and he's pulling the you know the wool over my eyes about that. I think for the most part, there's a couple scenes where they show his turkey neck double chin and I feel like, oh, he's this old. <laughs> what are we doing? Like not even the black and white can hide it. but right. uh, and, and you're probably right like inconsistencies like when he's he, he puts on the old man voice at times and that's not a 43 year old voice. And there's other times where he's energetic, yeah.
0: I don't want to sound like a jerk, but there are times when he tries to almost put an accent on it where he gets almost bane voice and I go, What what just happened? Um but <laughs> <'cause he laughs> to be fair, goes, he was
1: our he was our Tom Hardy, Gary Oldman growing <laughs> That's up. That's fair. That's right? very true. He
0: he is a chameleon and I will give him that. Um but you're right. I, I it, like I didn't mean to interject so much, but there are so many times when I literally was like did he just have this weird upward inflection that went banish at the end of summer, some of those things? <laughs> that, I, I, it just drove me crazy. But for the for and large, I would not be upset, especially in this type of year, if he was nominated.
2: As far as nominations go, I- I'm still not sure. I am kind of impressed, or very impressed, that he was able to keep this from getting into like caricature territory because this is a guy who's just not serious ever. <laughs> like he really he really takes the piss out of like every serious situation right down to the crescendo of the movie and the climax, the finale of the movie especially. Yeah. I mean he just doesn't you know, he takes life for what it is and he thinks it's it just should not be taken all that seriously and to do that and have that kind of tone for your protagonist who's, who's in almost every scene is really difficult to like center and have a sadness to like I think Oldman does successfully. I wonder Like, I wonder with every category about the Academy is how much this is going to resonate with people on their first watch, because we know the Academy doesn't watch everything as it is, and I wonder, Mm -hmm. maybe they will because they're all stuck in their homes this year, so maybe this is the perfect year for this type of movie to come out. Uh, I I would not be surprised nor sad to see Oldman have success, but God help everyone if he wins, because then I'm going to just go race hell about Leo being snubbed once again for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, (laughs) You're right, you're not wrong. Yeah. Yeah, his shtick
1: gets a little out of control in the beginning, and with Davies, and... I agree with the negatives on his performance, but I also, I also think like there's spikes in activity in a way to to mirror like the the drunken narrative of the script, like I said, but I. I, I think the arc makes sense because you know Gary Oldman is looking at the serious socio-political implications of the script in the middle and the vendetta that he is on in this movie and he does kind of restrain himself especially if you look at earlier in his career and I wonder if Tom Hardy'll do this later in his career and, mm. and he'll have a 50 you know 50 or 60 year old performance where he is just enough of the uh, of the old character caricature actor that he used to be, that we loved him for, no question about it, because everyone loves when you can hit that <laughs> yep. note, as Al Pacino <laughs> says, you can hit the loud note. You know, I mean, if you can hit the high notes, sing loud, right? So Gary Oldman has done that through through his whole career, and he and he does hits hit a few of those notes in this one, but I I, I loved how the performance made sense overall to me, even though there's like I agree with you, there are spikes. There are certain moments where he's a bit inconsistent.
2: Were either of you, I Andrew, you could go first. Was talking about the supporting performances moving down the card. Were you surprised at the use of Amanda Seafried? And I guess along those lines, was there any supporting performance that stuck out to you more so than any overall? Or go with that for now. I mean, was I, I guess I, again I'm answering my own question, kind of like my co-host did. But like I was surprised that. <laughs> how this movie was sold as the Gary Oldman, Amanda Seafried movie to see how little and how kind of relegated to a side character Amanda Seafried was.
0: Yeah. I thought she was very good. I, I thought she was transformative here because considering her past work, uh, I thought she really, you know, took up the, the role very strongly and it so, kind of was a mm-hmm. perfect combination of her skills and looks and everything. I, I, it's amazing casting. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and I thought she nailed it. However, within the the construct of the of the screenplay, if you want to talk about someone who gets kind of sidelined uh, mm. for a large part of this movie, that would probably be her. Especially if mm-hmm. what we're supposed to believe that their relationship is the the entryway here to all the information that Megwitz right. is exposed to, and 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 how you need that scene towards the end of them kind of coming to an understanding about what he did so i mean for all of that i think she does an excellent job and i would definitely consider her i haven't done a full you know scope especially because you know i know a lot of critics are putting out their best of the year lists already but guess what we got to play a little catch up here so um (laughs) you know us, us 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 peons so we're trying to to get uh through the season but as of right now i would definitely put her in um, for Best Supporting. The, I think what this movie is going to have a tough time with is that a, a little bit in a Chicago 7 way, but even more, I think there's so many characters here, and, mm. and there's only so many that are prominent. Like, even part of my first uh, blush at this movie, one of the first things I wrote down was, it's an hour and a half in this movie. This movie is about how... Why he wrote this script about Hearst, and we've seen Hearst three times, and uh, right. and 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 the first two are small, especially the first one. So, you know what's the beauty of it? Rewatching it is really the the marionetting, <laughs> the the puppeteering <laughs> that Hearst does behind the scenes, yeah. um, and really kind of getting the the presence of him without him being around. But if you're really trying to look for this movie being the mystery of why then to, there's so many other like i went back and watched uh was it rko 281 and some of the other looks at hearst and every time somebody portrays hearst it's way more demonstrative it's way more over the top it's way more pointed mm. it's way more uh of kind of how he's portrayed in citizen kane so wow if if you're if you're putting it out there that citizen kane is accurate right and -hmm. then your portrayal of him in this movie is less than it does seem to be a bit jarring so you're saying this is the
1: michael corleone of william randolph Hearst performances where it's just (laughs) that cold as ice you know big power behind the chair Performance. I, I I like that, and I agree. I I agree with that. That one look that Charles Dance uh, gives you at the yeah. end is almost worth the price of admission, and almost gets him nominated. But I, I would I would also say it's by implication, it's by inference that his power is being wielded in this story, so he doesn't get the showcase performance. And I don't think any of the supporting actors get the showcase performance. But I think it's a year of really strong supporting actor performances, where we have a lot of guys on the same level, a lot of guys on that B plus level but there's no undeniable a minus a performances in that category so like the academy queens kind of said you know we don't necessarily have that you know in any year this should be nominated supporting actor performance right. yet that i've seen yet in terms of supporting actress i love lily collins and tuppence, tuppence middleton i've loved their indie film careers from disappearance at clifton hill and to the bone mike we reviewed that a couple years back yep. Uh, about about uh, eating disorders where mm-hmm. I mean Lily Collins was terrific and yeah, she, she was. was she was really good in this movie and to get rounded performances and rounded characters out of the, that little screen time is tremendous but the most behind any set of eyes in this story in terms of the female cast members is Amanda Seedfried and to me she's like the first supporting actress nom where I'm like this this has to be nominated this year and probably in most other years I would be totally, I would love to see her nominated because it's such a cool performance and there's so much behind that character Though you're like, I mean, this is the real, this is another essence of the film. You know, Manx issues with her, with Marion Davies, especially with the Susan Alexander, you know, Kane portrayal that we just analyzed and the Rooney Mara portrayal that we just analyzed to book in the social network and then you got inferences uh to or allusions i should say to zelda fitzgerald i mean she's mm. got this mixture between portrayals we've seen of zelda fitzgerald and you know what you would think susan alexander really was like in citizen kane because she goes from a to z and she becomes this battle axe by the end right at the end of uh <clears throat> the actual viewing and then you got mank Deepen in her character, Gary Oldman. Deepen in her character, saying that in this movie it's basically a situation where I'm writing her the way most people would perceive her. I'm not writing her this way, but of course right, we that's find what out I was that. Gonna say
2: she's she's kind of the, the one of the characters that everyone's talking about yeah. most in every other scene. Which is she's very the celebrity. It's also why I wanted more of her, though. It's Mm -hmm. why I asked that question at the outset of this. just I I felt like there was more that she could have done on screen, especially with the layers Fincher does give her. But I'm with both of you. I think it's a a fantastic performance on her part. But we can wrap up the uh, Oscar lens and the non-spoiler section here after a quick 17-hour conversation. (laughs) Mike, how many nominations are we looking at here?
1: Probably 11 at the end of the day. And I, I, I went through this painstakingly. Original screenplay, I think, is a no-brainer in terms of nomination. Jack Fincher, the narrative is there. And I think uh, David Fincher as a, as a best director, contender, is very real. To me, like, its best chance of winning right now is production design, like I said. Sound design is also right there. Supporting actress, I haven't seen anything better. Uh, I, I probably would say costumes, I would jump up to six. Because I think the costumes are really awesome. Seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, picture, score, editing, cinematography are probably all on the same level. It's very, very likely in this particular year that I would say they get nominated, and that would make out ten. And Gary Oldman as an eleventh uh, for for actor. Maybe an Arliss Howard. I would say is probably as Lb Mayer. That character is just fascinating mm. and has some showcase scenes to him. Very very if, if well it's, done by Yeah, him too. if it's not Charles Dance. Uh, I mean, I loved Tom Burke. I loved Tom Pelfrey as uh, Irving uh, as Irving Thalberg as well. I mean, there's really a, there's a deep bench of really good supporting performances in this. Lily Collins, like I said, Tuppence Middleton. But I think I think we're looking at an Amanda Seedfried, Gary Oldman. I don't think I'm going out of limb when saying that they have the best chances in the ensemble.
2: So Andrew, let me ask it to you a different way. Does this feel like a movie that's a double-digit Oscar nom movie when you were watching it?
0: You know what it feels like. It feels like Irishman Part Two in the sense of <laughs> it's going to be very well celebrated. I think that given the pedigree of the director and a lot of the people involved, that it's going to be celebrated. Uh, it'll be Hollywood patting Hollywood on the back, kind of you mm. know uh, throwback stuff, and then they will ultimately not reward it. And I <laughs> I I feel even oh. in a down year where. Every other article, it feels like, uh, for a long time this year was, well, this is just the Netflix Oscars, isn't it? And that Netflix is going to sweep everything. (laughs) Slow down, because remember, nobody has really rewarded Netflix to this point. So it's not like they're the only game in town and they have all the awards up to this point, too. They still haven't gotten that crown jewel. And I feel like this one is going to be the same deal over and over again. I, I if if anything, you might see Fincher get something here because he hasn't been rewarded in some, in that way. There yeah. is
2: that narrative out there for sure. I think that's definitely going to be part of award season, especially considering the landscape, the field that he's going to be up against.
1: And it's yeah. his dad's screenplay that makes for the perfect narrative of him winning the director Oscar in a year uh, you know, in a throwback movie about the, you know, the the fight for screen credit between Orson Welles and Auteur and, you know, Mankiewicz, the, you know, the Hollywood lifer, screenwriter, you know, uh, what did they call him? Um, you know, loser genius, I, I read in that Variety <laughs> yeah. article, right? So I mean, it's 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 a situation where it's this very meta Hollywood story. And Fincher, like we said, in the last episode on the social network, Fincher, Fincher is very anti-auteur. And he lets a lot of his, you know, production heads in, in terms of even, even though he's the, you know, you, you think of him as a tyrant, he lets his screenwriters shine, he lets his you know, cinematographers put their stamp, their unique stamp on what they do. And Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, I mean, I'm sure he grills them and holds them to the highest of standards, but, you know, he is conducting the orchestra. Like, again, we keep making these references to Sorkin movies, but there it is. I mean, he's (laughs) he's a conductor of the orchestra on this movie. And, you know, the highs are really, really high. And in a year where I don't think you have any of these no-brainer great movies yet, I think the no-brainer, great stuff that we've seen this year is is in TV, and a lot of it's on Netflix. There you go, Andrew. But I, I think it's <laughs> uh, you know it's it's a year where it's a wide open Oscar race, and you got a lot of indie films that are going to battle, and you got a lot of you know Netflix films like this that are going to be on everybody's list. So I, I think it's going to be a fun conversation, Mike, where we talk about who wins because a lot of these movies are on the same tier, and right now it's anybody's guess to how. You know, the Academy is going to react after this pandemic, after they've been all, you know, been in quarantine for so long
2: Mm, with no
1: campaigns or anything. It's going to be awesome to talk about.
2: Well, halftime here. We can talk about why these things are going to be into consideration and uh, prep for the next 17 hours of this conversation as uh, we go into the (laughs) spoiler section right now. Spoilers ahead. This is a spoiler warning. Spoilers. Spoilers. Oscar, Oscar Sprint, spoilers! This is the spoiler section of the movie Mank, brought to you by a crossover episode featuring Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and the NOMCast. Andrew, our good buddy from the NOMCast, is here joining us. If you've seen this movie already, uh, then you want to stay tuned for all the spoilers we're going to discuss. If you've yet to see it, hit pause. It's on Netflix right now. Go check it out. We'll be here waiting for you when you come back. All spoilers all the time from this point out for Mank. Let's start at the end, and where we all knew this conversation would go eventually, let's talk about monkeys, guys. Uh... (laughs) Did either of you know that parable about the monkey going into this? No. The short answer is no. Did you, Andrew? Uh,
0: not in those exact terms, no. <laughs> I mean, there's different allusions to a similar thing, but no.
1: It's an organ grinder, which sounds like a deli something or other. <laughs> but it's, really, it's really a musical instrument. And he has this monkey that he dresses up in a fez and dresses up in a little red suit and he takes into the city and he plays. And it's from the POV of the monkey. Whereas the monkey thinks the monkey's importance, self-worth, is to, is is that he has this man, this human man, following him around. So I must be important. Or all these people wait for me to sing. And, of course, Charles Dance goes on the the rant of all rants, throwing Mank out. But ultimately, it's just a dare to, to Herman Mankiewicz. He's like, all right. You know you're basically you're a dancing monkey and I dare you I fucking dare you to do what you just said because Mank just told him all to his face he's like if I you know if I really wanted to get back at you guys, I would write your story and tell the Don Quixote story about your life because fuck you and everything you did after this whole you know after this whole gubernatorial race situation and where Bill Nye the science guy is the you know somehow the essence to this plot involving Orson Welles
2: <laughs> and Herman Mankiewicz, right so so do you think that was more of a slight to Mank's ego or do you oh, think yes. Hearst was more a guy that that story needed to be told about like was Hurst more evil than Mank was egomaniacal yes. uh, for me to say that more clearly
1: Yes, he was. And Hearst is the power behind any throne. I mean, Hearst is, you know, Trump before Trump, but Hearst is unable to win elections in his own right, especially at a large scale. So he has to pull the strings behind the scenes. And, you know, his what do they call that guard dog and L.B. mayor just you know crushed Mankiewicz in the scene previous, basically saying that Mankiewicz was a lapdog and he was this court jester. Right, mm. and I just think I just think mank you know after he pukes and purges, if he, he feels guilty right, I and mean, he feels guilty and he says to to this guy that he's been going whose house he's been going over for almost a decade right who's who's his kind of social friend in many many mm-hmm. ways and a a guy he kind of admires and they they do when they meet each other they admit to the issues of hollywood and they admit to the you know the to the fact that he was a muckraker and he built his career on this and that and they kind of have this understanding together and it, and, and he likes to have mank around because mank you know, tells him the truth and he's a bit of contrarian. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, when I really need to put my foot down and when I can't have a socialist who wants to spread the wealth around when I want to hoard it, as Mr. <laughs> as Mister Hurst was known to do, if anybody was, you, you can't be saying all this stuff. So I fucking dare you. I dare you to go go ahead and write Citizen Kane. And then the funny part is, that, and the cool part is, to me, that Manx like, okay, the first time he gets a chance to write Citizen Kane, after he gets benched by MGM, he writes fucking Citizen Kane right. about
2: this So, guy. Andrew, I guess I guess the natural follow-up question there is, did the movie do enough to establish Hearst as this kind of overbearing antagonist who was worthy of being taken down?
0: Yeah, I mean, we talked about it a little bit when we were talking about the supporting uh, performances that you know, on First Blush you're w- saying that there's only three real scenes or four scenes mm. maybe total with Charles Dance uh being Hearst live and in person and really putting his stamp on things. And, you know, they, I think they set up that scene to basically make up for the fact that they don't have him largely throughout, but especially in multiple watches, you kind of really get a sense of, you know, how he performs and, and, and behind the scenes and is really, it they make it almost into a mystery of yeah. how, how the influence is really being, um, performed out in public between the billboards the messaging and everything else that uh you know he had said um you know or in past conversations when he was in person so it kind of is connecting the dots in a way for that and that that scene, uh, the the monkey scene, which by the way, shout out to also Mike, uh, thinking organ grinder and going to deli meat instead of thinking <laughs> it's a scene out of Saw. Yeah, um, that's what I. That's exactly where my mind went first. <laughs> <laughs> so we all know where our hearts are. So that's okay. <laughs> um, but I would say, you know, they, they, like I said, that's kind of like the, you needed to have him put his influence directly on to mank for the movie to feel like it accomplished what it sought out to do or like to really have some kind of propulsion. Because I feel like (laughs) one thing if you can say about this movie as opposed to, say, anything he did with Mindhunter or Zodiac or anything, there's not a a beating heart propulsion to this movie until maybe you could say halfway through. But even Mm. then, it's nowhere near like past Fincher work in terms of, of the pacing. Um, I think because there's so many things and the storyline isn't as streamlined. So I think they couldn't in a way um, because there's so much flashback and there's so many things that just don't fully connect. They're they're serving so many masters. So this is that end scene, though towards the end scene, I guess we'll get to the end in a minute. But uh, that scene with uh, Hearst at the end is basically a makeup for how they perform the screenplay.
1: If... If this movie is, or if the story is compared to a video game, then here's how it's set up. Like it's almost, you begin the movie establishing Hearst and Davies first, and then you move from there and you establish LB Mayer and then Thalberg, and then you come back to Davies and Hearst. And all the while his brother and he his family is caught in the middle and it's that kind of accordion where they, they sit with symmetry on opposite sides of the screenplay. in the end of act one you're getting the worst of L.B. Mayer and I can kind of go through my best scenes this way right I mean mm-hmm. at the end of act one L.B. Mayer does that disgusting thing and you get that great line from uh, Mankiewicz not even the most disgraceful thing I've ever seen I was, mm-hmm. I've laughed out loud at that moment and I loved it but you know Mayer is shown his true colors are shown not only in Judy from 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 last year but are shown here where he doesn't pay anybody their their due worth after he lies to their faces in that moment some of the best cinematography of the movie but then we deal with the power behind you know that lieutenant of the of the big boss and that's Thalberg and Thalberg in those two great scenes you have Thalberg basically telling Mank hey you got to give your 10 bucks because we are unanimously Republican and we're all donating against Upton Sinclair. So, Mank, you have to you, – you, we can fire you for this if you don't do that. But it's it's crazy because, you know, Thalberg understands in that, in that moment that this is – you know, William Randolph Hearst guy and William Randolph Hearst is paying half his salary as we come to learn. So he can't fire Mank in that moment, but he has to look tough with Mank and he gets the worst out of Mank there. So Mank tries to tell him off and it gives him, un- mm-hmm. unknowingly gives him the idea to make the fake news reels. And this is like the, again, when I said that, uh, you know, Oldman and Mank's character feels no pain in the middle of the story. This is what I meant. Like This is the the gravest mistake he makes when he gives the strategy to Thalberg of all the fake newsreels and inadvertently lets him ruin the the election, steal the election. And in the follow-up scene, you have Mank watching all the phony newsreels and he storms back into Thalberg's office and Thalberg twists the knife and he basically pays Mank for the idea. He gives him his thirty pieces of silver, right, and forgives his twelve thousand gambling debt. And for a guy that's making twenty five hundred a week, you know, one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year, I mean, the twelve k gambling debt is big, but it's not huge. Right. The fact that that gets doubled or nothing, you know, later on from the sour grapes from Mank and it becomes twenty four k is great. But also here. You have the inversion of the last scene. The last scene, Mank actually inspired, inadvertently inspired Thalberg to do his dirty work. But then you have Thalberg inspiring Mank to do his his da- dirtiest. And Thalberg says, if only, you know, how formidable people like you would be if they mm. gave it the office. I yeah, am who line. I am. Oh, my God. I love that. And he inspires the third, you know, the, the second half of the movie from Mank.
2: And Andrew, I know you, as far as going to the actual finale here, speaking of great lines, you had maybe not one of your best. Maybe it was one of your lowlights. I can't I, I'm not sure how you want to put it, but <laughs> you had issues with how that was framed and used at the end there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I would have loved if somehow they were able to kind of either end on something short at best after the scene with Hearst because um, I think that's really the, the poignant part of the story and really mm. the kickoff point or at least the, the real last nail before he writes Kane. So if, mm. it, it's a, as far as at least the flashback is concerned, that's the last deal. But to go so much, you're going almost future tense afterwards and then yeah. finishing on all the Oscar stuff. It felt either like that the Oscar stuff was too long. Or that they were they fell in love with that line that I did see in the research beforehand about you know uh, how he uh, accepted this in the same way that Citizen Kane was written you know by himself basically uh, to yeah. paraphrase and you know I think they they wanted to end on that note but it's it's more or less to end a movie like this on an fu to Kane or excuse uh, to, to Wells, Wells is to you know kind of not serve the script as well and that's where i wonder if they could have done something differently there that's my only critique of that but you know like i said when you have a movie that's serving so many themes it's hard to know how to maybe stick the landing
1: i love that critique and i i would agree like to me the most overlong issues with this movie are are the prologue and epi- epilogue of it, and it doesn't really fit, even though it's kind of fun. I mean, it's fun to see him at Paramount in the greatest, you know, Frankenstein movie improv pitch in the world because they're fucking <laughs> off all day. Well, this boys' club—they're messing around, yeah—and but and they're not—they're yeah. not prepared for that pitch meeting, and they go from one guy to the next, improv improvising this bullshit, you know, Frankenstein, uh, and throwing
2: the the studio executive catnip at the. It's about the fault of man, you and see. It, yeah, it's a,
1: it's contrived. <laughs> because it's ultimately going to basically talk about William Randolph Hearst and Citizen Kane and it fits right. thematically but he kind of falls in love and it's very indulgent in the setup and then of course you know the the story with with Wells is fun and it's what we expected going into this movie but it really only is the cherry on top I mean the Oscar stuff I love it but it, thematically it's it's different than the through line of this movie. I mean, they try to tie it in with the whole, this is Hollywood and this is movie magic lines that, uh, both Wells via the uh, radio broadcast and interview and kiss my half mank. And I, I, li- I liked all that <laughs> stuff. That's <laughs> fun. But it doesn't fit the you know the, the I mean that, that should have been a Trump criticism in you know the finale to the, the bookend the film and it's not that's why I said it's not the full cinnamon roll that we saw in the last two movies where mm. Erica and uh, Erica and Mark Zuckerberg have their thing beginning and end and of course Rosebud is at the beginning of end of Citizen Kane so that's different.
2: Speaking of Frankenstein, we're kind of combining best and worst here as we go. So I can uh, I'll I'll <laughs> just interject I. As far as issues and low lights, I, I didn't have that many other than the general frustration I was feeling. And again, I think, again, that's also just a, a, a symptom of only having watched it one time through. I think this is, I agree with Andrew, this is something that demands a second viewing. The exposition dump in Act 2 of the introduction of Upton Sinclair and yeah. how he's not going to be used as the only thing that anyone in this generation knows Upton Sinclair to have done. <laughs> like how he's going to be a completely different character than anything you know him from, and you just have to kind of play catch-up. I thought that was a bit of a, a misopportunity. opportunity for this movie as well. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that or any other highs or lows you kind of want to get into as we're uh, piecing this together as we go here.
1: I think he wanted to use that time to also kind of round out the conflict or the eventual conflict between Marion Davies and Mank and, and then again at the end of Act 2 between the writer's room and Shelley and Mank where it's it's look, it's not Halloween six or whatever Halloween where they just go down the elevator. I mean, they're walking through San Simeon, but you're, you're right. saying
2: you're saying Citizen Kane isn't as good as Halloween six is what I'm hearing. <laughs> I'm saying Mank <laughs> isn't as good as Halloween six. No, right, I think right. Mank
1: <laughs> is uh, you're enjoying the wonderful scenic walk around the uh, the, the San Simeon and you're mm-hmm. basically establishing at the end of all of that. You know, the, the heavy flirtatious, sexualized, sexually charged flirtations of the beginning of that scene ends with this joke about Mank saying, let her alone, right? You know, hmm. and that and that joke is basically saying, "I'm look, I'm too old for you. We're friends. And right. I, I, I like that at the end of the day. And she even falls into his hand, which probably copped a feel like I rewatched that a bunch of times and he didn't. He grabbed her elbow. But it did. It definitely was one of those scenes where she was like, you know, my fault. I fell onto you. But they were flirting. They were flirting pretty heavy there, and and that's Mank's blind spot throughout this film. He doesn't realize that she's, you know, her first lieutenant, and that's why I, you know, I, I really liked that, that portrayal of Marion Davis in this movie. It's showing her too. much smarter than we ever thought she she would be as Susan Alexander Kane, right? And she wasn't always opposed to to citizen to, to charlie foster kane either right. she wasn't always opposed to william randolph first she didn't even leave him at the end you know the, the I mean, again you, there's a lot of you know drops of irony and there's a lot of uh little things thrown in that i loved like the whole line about her you know the what rosebud really means i had my brother text me today does rosebud mean amanda seedfried's butt <laughs> <It made> a, <laughs> mean her butthole i'm like what what? why would you ascribe it to Amanda Siegfried? But no, it doesn't mean, but everybody was like, you know, it could be his bicycle. It could be William Randolph's Hearst bicycle or another, it might have been Pulitzer's bicycle. There's a lot of rumors out there, but I know, judging by Zodiac and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, you know, Fincher loves dropping those little Easter eggs in these movies. So, Oh, I well, that's it,
0: an RKO 281, by the way. Right. That so, they I use mean, it as Rosebud is her private parts. Rosebud. Uh, Rosebud it's Rosebud,
1: <laughs> but what were we talking about? I mean in terms of worse scenes i, I do think like those uh exposition dump dumps are just way too show folky. I mean there's literally when he meets Marion Davies for the first time again, they're talking about that Brooklyn party. And there's the Flatbush line, there's the arm wrestle line, mm-hmm. where it's a, a, a lucky break or whatever. And there's like five puns in the first three lines of dialogue. And I'm just like, nobody talks like that, not even show folk. That's what I'm right. saying to myself. I'm like, there's no wonder he did that 200 times, because on the page it didn't work, and it was just totally unrealistic, so of course you're going to try and make it work and force it. I don't think it worked at the end of the day, and it's unfortunate.
2: And that's also why I think it's uh, derived from Sorkin or Sorkin Asker. Fincher is trying to prove he can write like him because it was very... I mean, that's, that's exactly my feeling on it. It's, I don't disagree, yeah. didn't seem like anything anyone would actually say in real life. Uh, Andrew, anything else stand out for you you wanted to touch on? Anything that really uh grabbed you about this movie in terms of best, worst scenes or themes?
0: No, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying, especially I think I probably choked the first time I heard Nobody Makes a Monkey out of William Randolph Hearst in that <laughs> zoo scene. It is awful and it comes out of nowhere because she shouts when they've been just talking casually the entire time and it's rewatching seem to it. Fit. It's
1: basically she does that every time she walks by the monkeys because the monkeys come up to her. She must have done that every time
0: she walks by the monkeys, is my guess. I see. Okay. Yeah. Well yeah, I, I, I feel it doesn't come across as well, but sure. No, it doesn't. I don't like it's silly. It's a trailer
1: line, it's a soundbite.
0: One hundred percent. I felt manipulated and that's why I guess I felt that it was worse than what it was. But it absolutely, if you fall asleep on that conversation, you miss almost all the setup for what is to come uh outside of that the the conversation where uh you know irving gets the tip from mank i mean literally it's it's all set up right there uh especially as uh the follow-up to the first upton sinclair conversation so it is a wild exposition dump um all the way through so that's a a lesser than a low light i won't say it's completely without <laughs> merit or without uh anything good in there in terms of performance but my goodness yeah that could have been uh, buttoned up or repositioned in some way
2: i think it's so fascinating that we're talking in the non-spoiler section we all are speaking so highly of this and then clearly when we get the spoilers clearly <laughs> there's more uh, of the negative we're bringing up than the positive but that's just by half it's just a very unique Movie, I think, is the uh, the general message you can walk away from if you, for whatever reason, are listening to the spoiler section without having seen the picture first. Uh, it's definitely something you're going to want to handle a couple times through. Uh, I don't know if we want
0: to go right into final grades now and start wrapping this up. Uh, I can give but- you one more positive, if you like, Mike. Yes, please. I I wrote down a line. we said a lot of very good lines, and I know we've critiqued the screenplay and also praised it and its themes and everything else. So it is very you know we have a lot of feelings that still need to be (laughs) sussed out in terms of this but there is one line that i uh, or exchange of dialogue later in the film uh between the scene between mank and davies that i think some really summarizes their relationship in a very nice uh back and forth where Mm -hmm. uh You know, at the end of the day, Manx says, I hope that if this movie gets made that you forgive me. And she goes in kind and says, I hope that if it doesn't, you forgive me. And that is literally their relationship in a nutshell that I think is very very underrated back and forth because it's so hard to, you know, crystallize something in that notion in only a couple of lines. And I thought that was very impressive.
1: And if I may, just one the same point about the Joe Mankiewicz stuff. You know, because that that relationship between brother and brother, and I read the biography of the Brothers Mankiewicz, I mean, that was a contentious, you know, that was a rivalry where they also really loved each other and supported each other, and we saw Mank bring his brother Joe to Hollywood, we saw him, you know, patron his way in, and then... We have this younger brother complex where on behalf of all the supporting characters, I would, you know, I mean, it's a great back and forth scene where you get allusions to all of the the gross, you know, Boys Club Weinstein, you know, casting couch stuff there, too, with Joe Mankiewicz that I referred to in a previous episode where he's making that joke about the French court who the king who pussy grabbed. I mean, for lack of a better word. Mm. And we're again, this was, this is about Trump, this movie, this is about Mm. Trump admitting to that. And we got him diddling all the people in his court and uh, like telling people he does so. And then we have Joe Mankiewicz who has been rumored to be involved with all those gross casting couch situations from the biography that was written about him. At least as far as I'm concerned, we have this, you know, this gross joke being made that leads him out of the wizard of Oz you know, probably the second best thing that Mank ever contributed to into this younger older brother thing where Mank is like trying to encourage his other brother, younger brother and say, I'm finished, you know, it's your time now. And then the younger brother comes over the top with that and he goes, no, this is the best thing you've ever written. And then, of course, he has to, you know, he has to go for credit at that point, which I just thought was brilliant. And I just thought it was two brothers loving one another and really caring about one another the same way you got that reluctant admission of, you know, friendship between Marion Davies and and Herman Mankiewicz. Like those bookend scenes like the third act of this movie is brilliant. And if the first act and second act rose to the same levels of brilliance. I would be all about this movie as an as an A to get into grades. Yeah. I, but it just doesn't get there. Like, the third act it gets there, nothing else does.
2: I wonder if it gets muddled into... Again, and this is something Andrew and I talked about off off recording, too. It's just, it's there's so much here. It should either be a miniseries, or Fincher should have just stuck to that one through line, uh, which I think he could have done uh, more successfully. But, all right, so... I. I it's not an a for mike we know that i can go first i still have no idea what i feel about this movie for the most part i'm going to be play it safe i'll give it an 84 b with a question mark and also you know an asterisk next to it uh subject to change higher or lower depending on how many more times i take this in and watch it uh andrew what do you think for grades
0: I, I was with you, Mike. I, like I told you, I think at some point, I forget whether it was on or off, but it's like I'm you in the future. where Right. Like, it's, uh, <laughs> when I first watched it, I was definitely having so many mixed emotions. Some of the stuff, uh, the critiques still hold up over multiple views, so it's not going to be an A from me either. Um, but I will definitely say that it does increase uh, my respect for the screenplay and the themes and everything else as it more clicks in over time and really cementing some of those scenes that really work. Um, so I would probably say uh, – God, I would say maybe like a, a high B, low B, B+, plus. so like in the 86, 87 range okay. for me. And is this um, higher
1: or lower than Chicago 7 for you? God. That's the big question, especially for Oscars conversations, I yeah, would say. Yeah, I mean
0: both flawed – I, I obviously uh, you know I'd, I'd love to say my 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 next few sentences will influence anything but I would definitely say if we've looked at what has worked on the Academy over the years that something like Chicago 7 will work on them more than Mank um, I, I don't agree with that. I, I don't know if that's what's happening to me inside because <laughs> I, I it shouldn't there should be no competition for a Fincher film in this person's brain um, but I would say they're pretty close neck and neck. I mean, Chicago 7 having that third act issues does bother me. At least this one nails it up until the very, 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 very end for me. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, I think the flow of Chicago 7 is to be admired. Hmm. So, God, they're they're like right neck and neck. I, I, I agree. It's hard to really put it any higher or lower. I agree. I have Mank a tick above Chicago
1: Seven, but they have the same grade for me right now. I have uh, a similar grade for all of the contenders this year for Best Picture. I would say from yeah, they're all
0: B pluses, aren't they? I Minari mean, you guys have and said yeah, it all: year. Land,
1: Miami. I mean, they're all they're all right there. Right? So that's going to be a fun uh... conversation <laughs> for everybody but one person. That's going to be a really fun conversation because it's a wide open race. They're all of the same tier, right, Mike?
2: Uh...
1: <laughs> but I'm a B- I'm a B plus 89. And there was a point during my you know rewatches where I was like, an A minus. This has got to be an A minus. But then I go back and look at the problems with act one and act two. And, yeah, and it's over long. And why is it about Bill Nye, the science guy? And I get it. But then Tuppence Middleston makes a joke about horses' asses and horses' faces. I love that joke so much. She was like, I haven't seen a horse's face in yeah, <laughs> Because I've only like, seen – she only sees horses' asses. I love it. That's the greatest joke ever. Yeah, but- she's
0: spinning a coin Yeah, <laughs> the way you put it. I don't know what that <laughs> accent was
2: we're gonna we're gonna make a movie about Jesus Christ but only he's going to be one of the main players but we only want to concentrate on his feelings about Oprah's book club that's what you're going to need to know about Jesus Christ that's what they did with Upton Sinclair in this it's just Ah, it's yeah, so, so frustrating.
1: Make him a main character. Like, I, I think, at the end of the day, make Upton Sinclair a main character that might have portrayed a little well, but a, or a little better, but again, they're trying to make him like Hearst. They probably needed to book in the film more with some Bill Nye instead mm-hmm. of just let him, you know, fleeting from silhouette. Across the uh, street, kind of show him. Although
2: Bill Nye thing. is omnipresent, he is Bill Nye in real life is everywhere with all of <laughs> us at all times. So I, have a, I have a
0: quick question for the both of you because yeah. it, it's been bothering me since then. Not only uh, the mini series thing, the mini series thing probably makes more sense and almost maybe clarifies this question. But I did have a moment where I was like, "Does this movie still work if it's written linearly without yeah. flashback?"
2: I think it works better.
0: That's why no, I've, 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 I I cuz parts of me is just like you need to have him I don't know if you need to have him in that room to start so that's already a thing but if you if you told me cuz Wells is such a footnote in this conversation that if you if you have all the stuff that led to him wanting to write this and then how? have Kane be kind of the the end
1: How dare you? How dare we all? <laughs> how dare you, Mike? we are questioning david fincher's story structure right now
0: no <laughs> I, look, I, i'm it's, questioning it's, jack fincher's structure yeah
2: that's the <laughs> thing it's it's it, would david fincher have done like here t- take your father's life work and edit it you know, like, what an impossible task to do for anybody, never mind somebody actually I making agree. a movie. So if this was a David Fincher script, I wonder how he would have done it. But, of course, he's if this is how his father had it, he's not going to, as again, much as he was, and we've talked about he was badgering his father for rewrites and changes and stuff. He's It's his father, it's an homage to his dad, first and foremost.
1: The serious answer to your question is no, because the, this script is not about the end result. This script is about going back to the why. It's going back to the why. So if that's your mid movie climax, the, I mean, can you imagine if the mid movie climax was the Fu Don Quixote pitch scene? No, then, I think you're
0: mi- you're misunderstanding. I guess maybe where I think the end is still the same in a way because if Charles dance and that scene is the end still, then the chunk of the building the relationship with Marion Hurst and what was going on in the studio but is that's the not chunk linear of your story. That's, that's not well, linear. But all, well, if you took all the flashback and put them back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back and made them solidify all those themes, does it not become no, linear?
1: Be, be, beca- no. But, well, if you made it linear, if you, if you made it timeline, the middle of the movie is telling off Randolph Hearst uh, and the organ grinder's monkey. That's the middle of the movie. And then you do all of the you know, 1939, 40 stuff and you go to the end where he basically has all the uh, conferences with his brother and everybody's saying, don't make the script. I, that doesn't work at all for me because the, you know, the, yeah, you have a good scene with Wells at the end uh, on the heels of a really, you know, two good scenes, like I said, with Davies and, and Joe, but I, it doesn't have the same back and forth. Like mm. I thought that was a brilliant, brilliant cross cut of a finale yeah. where he kind of did half the uh, scene with uh dance and then half the scene with burke half the scene with Hurst, half the scene with wells and i, I thought that was I really ratcheted up and i was that's why i was like fucking a at the end of this movie i was like that is a badass back and forth that's a fincher like back and forth so no I, I i would probably disagree with you guys making this linear i think it needed to be it needed to be the dueling plot lines just based on narrative build and drive and whatever
2: would it have been a better movie if if Wells was just a figment of manx imagination, and he started a club with him. I think that outfit
1: that Wells used to wear, and if you look at real <laughs> pictures of Orson Wells in his early twenties, where he's got that friar's frock, and then he yeah, looks giant... like the Spanish
0: Inquisition. And in, in the... what a terrifying <laughs> <dude>. <laughs> Can you imagine
1: seeing that guy across the street? Like, what would you do? And he's like six foot five. He's also, is Michael Bell's Shannon
0: episode.
2: not available? Like, I feel like this was Michael Shannon's role to play Orson Welles. uh, That's a good point. uh, I feel like we went like 10 hours on this and just scratched the surface. So it's something that we're definitely going to be talking about more as award season 2020 slash 2021 goes on as long as the world lets us go on, because we all know we're facing the end times, let's just be honest, and maybe Mm -hmm. this is going to help us cope with it. But anyway, (laughs) uh, certainly a fascinating movie, a fascinating conversation, something we're going to dive more into. Uh, As always, though, we want to hear from you, dear listener, especially about your first and then your second watch through Mank, if you had them already. What are your feelings? Have they differed at all? Let us know that. You can leave that, as well as any other comments, questions, or concerns for us, Mike, Mike, and Oscar, or Andrew at the NOMCast on our social medias. You are at Nomcast Pod, N O M C A S T Pod, all one word on Twitter. We are at M M and Oscar on Twitter, or you can reach us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Uh, Michael, mm-hmm. what are the words of wisdom? And maybe we should have Andrew say some words of wisdom as well.
1: Well, the words of wisdom is if you're, you know, an MMO person, you should become a Nomcast person, and vice versa. Hopefully, I mean, we've done seventeen crossovers up till now, Andrew. Imagine if
2: Andrew's imagine if Andrew's words of wisdom were just like no. <laughs> Don't do that. Be- become a
1: but <laughs> No, in, in terms of what's coming next, we got the Fincher-Mank mini series award show for us here at MMO. I'm very curious to learn what you got coming up next, Andrew. Is it prom and uh Ma Rainey related? I'm guessing.
0: Of course, yeah. I it's you know December is their you know Oscar dump. Uh, as it were you know like they tried to do in uh, a kickoff with hillbilly elegy we we disavow that one and we just move right on to december we put, <laughs> so, our foot down. we put our foot down with that one and we didn't yeah. even
1: put it on our feed like uh, it's like gotta go to the movie marathoners and go to the nomcast to listen to those skating reviews yes.
0: yeah so we we have you know now have moved on to december so it's this is now the unofficial or official kickoff to uh the uh the the, the onslaught that netflix has yeah. coming up between this the prom ma Rainey, the midnight sky from george clooney uh you know pieces of a woman as their acquisition piece that's coming on the first week of, or first or second week of no uh excuse me january mm-hmm. uh so you got a lot to look forward to in the coming weeks from us uh you know it's probably some of the best time of the year and the way they keep acquiring things and moving things through you know january is a lot less boring than last year so with the, the pushback Oscar dates, they're ju- probably just going to keep adding and adding and adding, especially now with the increased competition from Warner uh, and HBO Max and, of course, Disney with Soul and everything else that they're going to uncover. So, yeah, it's going to be a big-time thing there. So, a toast to you guys to film criticism on our terms. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> <Toast>. <laughs> Blah, barf, everyone <laughs> <all> over the- <laughs> <laughs> Put
2: perfectly, Andrew. <laughs> uh, guys, as always, when reality sucks, you can come watch something and break it down with us. We think, we hope, anyway, we were able to provide you with some guidance. Uh, we are Mike, Mike, and Oscar and the Nomcast trying to make award season year-round without the stuffness, We will see you all very soon.